I want to pray for us as we begin. Father, would you steady our hearts as we come to your word? Would your spirit be among us, teaching us from your word? And Lord, as we bring our cultural baggage into reading this text, would your truth shine through it? And would we not fall to the temptations that are common to people in the 21st century? Lord, would we not uh, shy away from the supernatural elements of your word? Would we know, Lord, that uh, the world is far more complex than we realize? And Lord, would you teach us and humble us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, passage is going to definitely challenge your 21st century sensibilities. It's going to um, cause you maybe to blink for a second as I am uh, expounding these uh, scriptures. Um, But my prayer and hope is that humbly you um, can wrestle with these things because they're going to be two separate things that are really going to give you a, you know, give you a bit of a jolt in the behind of, whoa, what's going on? So let's get into it. You're probably going to pick up immediately as we read the passage. Uh, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start from verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But uh, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we've seen kind of over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking through the book of Genesis that the world has kind of been divided into two uh, uh, bloodlines, two descendants. We see the descendants of Cain who have kind of uh, had this downward cycle into more and more sin, and then these descendants of Seth. And, and we see that in Cain's line, there is uh, decadence and moral disaster. We see this greater slip. We see um, new sins being invented. We see polygamy. We see um, all sorts of um, uh, excesses and licentiousness. And then we see in the line of Seth, we have, we have this glimmer of hope. And in this glimmer of hope, we see that people begin to cry and call upon the name of the Lord. People begin to turn back to God. They see the sin around them and they cry out, you know, God, can you intervene? God, can you do something? God, can you rescue us from the oppression and evil around us? And God was patient with this generation. Just so we are aware, the uh, events that we are reading about now took place over 1,650 years. 1,650 years ago, was the fall of the Roman Empire, just for, um, just for understanding of that. This is a long time for humans to have been around, and God was patient. God remained patient and merciful with them, but his patience was soon to wear out. He doesn't want to abide in men forever. He's sorry that he made them. 
we get to this point. And the only hope for people living during this time was this one prophecy we see to the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Do you remember that? And so we see uh, Eve kind of taking this prophecy too literally when Cain came around because we know what Cain's name means and it means uh, I've got him or here he is. And, and who is it? Well, it is, well, I assume she believes that this was the crusher of the serpent's head. This was the one who would come and rescue them from their curse. And by the time we get to Noah, we still see this strong desire is here for a savior. We still see this strong desire for a Messiah present in that society. Someone that would come and crush the head of the serpent, rid them of that curse from Genesis 3. And we see this guy named Lamech. He named his son Noah rest. Why? Because in uh, Genesis 5, 29, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Noah sounds like the word for rest. And Noah's going to be this rest for them. Uh, in Lamech's eyes, Noah's the one that's going to overthrow this curse. And they've been bearing this curse for over a thousand years by this point. And so we need to uh, keep this in mind. Because this passage is going to be very hard to interpret unless we see as behind it the seed of the woman being the thing that is going to be the downfall of the serpent of, of Satan. Noah was in, indeed an important figure. We're going to see that Noah is indeed going to be used to deal a huge blow to Satan, but he wasn't the promised uh, like Messiah. He wasn't this salvific figure in the way that this uh, was prophesied then. And so today we need to keep this in mind. We're going to miss the point of this very strange, very challenging passage. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at two threats to the seed of the woman. And we're going to be looking at one glimmer of hope. Those are the three things we're going to be trying to look for in this text. Two threats to the seed of the woman and one glimmer of hope. So the first one is a demonic threat. A demonic threat. Verses uh, 1 to 4. We're going to read it again. Um, if you weren't uh, already paying attention for the first time, because this passage probably just jumped at you straight away. Let's read it again. Uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so our 21st century presuppositions are going to be challenged, and it's probably made you squirm a little bit. And we have these strange characters entering the narrative, um, and these one, these, they're called the sons of God. The sons of God. Who are these guys? They're contrasted with human beings. The sons of God come, and then we have the daughters of men. A human being, and then the sons of God. And the phrase sons of God actually shows up all throughout the Bible. And in every place, almost every single place, in the Old Testament at least, it refers to angels. Always refers to angels. Angels are beings that are created individually by God. They're spiritual beings that existed within the spiritual realm. And they are called the sons of God because they're special creations of God. They're not born of anyone. They're not created by any other process other than God willing them into existence. And so they're these spiritual beings. And we know that Satan, who showed up in the guise of a serpent, is an angel. So what on earth is going on? This is the first time we find angels apart from Satan. And Satan's not really explained to us in Genesis. 
uh, but they see that the daughters of men are attractive. The word here is the word you would use for beautiful, pleasant, desirable, and they decide to take them as wives. And they came into the daughters of men, and the women bore children to them. And we all know what that means. And through this strange and unnatural union, they give birth to these beings known as the Nephilim. And who are these guys? All of a sudden, we've got the sons of God. We're already struggling with that. And then we get these other uh, offspring that comes out, the Nephilim. Now, the word means fallen ones. It's literally what the word means. Nephilim are the fallen ones. And the passage here calls them mighty men, men of renown. That's who these guys ended up being, these powerful individuals, these powerful beings of notoriety, of fame, reputation, influential leaders and rulers during their time, and vehicles for great evil and suffering at that time. They were oppressive and destructive and a force for evil in this world. In fact, one of the ways you could uh, translate Nephilim is kind of like a bully, a tyrant. It's an interesting way that he reworks like that. And so you've got these um, angelic human hybrids that have got these clear advantages over the rest of humanity and use their advantages to oppress and dominate this early society. Now you might be feeling like I'm pitching you an idea for like a Netflix series or something along those lines. But we already saw from last week the ages of the people. This world was a very different world to the world we have today. Thousands and thousands of years separate us from this world. And so the obvious question comes up, why on earth are angels doing this? Why on earth are they creating these offspring? Well, that's simply because these women that they saw were really, really, really ridiculously good-looking. Is that what's going on? Were they from Zoolander or something? Or perhaps something more sinister was at play. See, Satan was there when he was cursed, was he not? He heard that curse. He heard God tell him, you're going to be crushed. Your head would be crushed one day. And do you know who's going to do it? The seed of the woman. If you were saying, what would you be doing? How am I going to stop this from happening? How am I going to overcome this thing? I imagine he's going to be uh, plotting ways to stop this from happening. And Satan would have played a role in Cain's murder and the corruption of his descendants. He wanted to corrupt the human race as much as possible. And while they remained responsible for their actions, Satan was working behind the scenes to ensure that there would be no one to crush his head. So what was the goal of these angels? It would seem that they were attempting to destroy the seed of the woman. They were corrupting the human race by creating this sort of hybrid offspring. There is another instance uh, where we know more in the New Testament. Uh, in, there's actually three passages we're going to go into. You might be surprised to hear that the New Testament talks about this, but it does on multiple occasions. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4-5. Peter says this, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. It's fascinating. Who are these angels that sinned during the time of Noah? Well, they're the sons of God. And they fell under God's judgment. And now they are kept in chains of gloomy darkness. That is where they reside right now. That is what they're doing right now, residing in chains of gloomy darkness. The word translated hell here is actually a different word, Tartarus, 
And that word actually gets translated as the bottomless pit in Revelation, for a bit of trivia for you. But it's not the kind of final lake of fire, Gehenna hell, that we think of when we think of hell. What about Jude 67? Listen to this. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, now these angels are compared to uh, the sin that was going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were chasing after unnatural desires. They were chasing after things that they ought not to. And they said, it says here that they are kept in gloomy darkness. The exact same phrase in 2 Peter. Last passage in the New Testament is 1 Peter 3, 18-20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And these angels did not obey God because they were kept in prison. Now, the lie of uniformitarianism, which is this belief that everything continues as it used to, and the belief that this couldn't have happened in the past because it's not happening right now, of course this isn't happening right now. If you knew that a whole padre of angels all came in and committed this terrible deed, and then God judged them with this absolutely harsh judgment, well, not a harsh judgment, but like, in terms of how horrifying it was for them, they kept in chains of gloomy darkness until now. Do you think Satan's going to run that strategy again? Do you think he's going to run that play? Do you think he's going to send his troops out to try something that's going to end up with terrible uh, consequences for them? They tried it once, it didn't work, they're not going to try it again. And that's what's happening here. And it says here that when Christ rose again from the dead, he actually went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison. It's getting even more weird. What's, what's Christ doing now, talking to these guys? What is this about? Well, the seed of the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, went to show himself to them. Why would he show himself to them? Why would he proclaim to them? Because the one they had tried to stop, the one that they bet their lives on and failed, triumphed over them. And here he is, proclaiming, heralding his victory over them in prison. These fallen angels had been in chains in gloomy darkness in prison for thousands of years. They had tried to stop God's plan, and the only time that they got a brief, uh, I guess, uh, relief from this situation is for Christ to show up to them and be like, you guys lost. Congratulations. You played yourselves. In Genesis 6, we can see how God felt about this. God was not pleased with these events. Why? Well, he pronounces a judgment. Genesis 6.3, he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, an interesting fact, which I don't actually think has anything to do with this verse, but the age, absolute age that you could probably get to if you took away diseases and you took away infections, a study came to about 120 years. It's probably the max that you can get to. Um, if you didn't have anything that's about the time that your body would just be like, that nah, can't do it anymore. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Humanity is given a number of 120 years. 120 years to what? 
I think this leads us to the second threat to the seed of the woman. First threat was demonic. The second threat, humanity. We were the threat, the human threat. Let's pick up in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Well, this is where your 21st century sensibilities are going to get challenged again. If you're not offended yet, you're going to be offended now. Here is an indictment on humanity that is very hard to take. It's a very hard pill to swallow. God sees humanity, the image bearers of God, and he says that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. If you're not squirming, if you're not uh, worried, if you don't feel like you want to vomit, well, you're, you know, surely this isn't true. Surely this isn't true. Surely this is an exaggeration. Is this really what the Bible thinks about humanity? Yes. Yes. Even the worst of us have some good thoughts or good motives, right? I mean, what's going on here? Imagine the most wicked criminal you can. He's murdered people, he's murdered kids, he's like the worst kind of guy ever since he was born, he was disobedient, he fantasized about killing, and he was happy, showed no remorse, and he was going to get killed. Even that guy, the worst guy, the worst criminal you can think of, do you think that he never had one good thought? One redeeming moment? One element where he thought, maybe I shouldn't do this kind of stuff? Imagine for a second an upstanding young man, captain of his school, a straight-A student, walking along and he sees an old lady getting robbed. The young man springs into action, chases this would-be thief away, and the old lady thanks him profusely and gives him a crisp $20 note. Was that a good thing? Of course. Of course. So then how does this verse come to bear on both those situations? Because it would seem that this verse would be wrong on both accounts. Well, actually here, what we have is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. This is the belief that human beings are completely steeped in sin. We're completely affected by it. We're polluted and corrupted by it. When you dig down a little deeper into both scenarios... Uh, was this young man who was excelling in life, was he as good as he appeared? We don't know. Can you see the motives of his heart? Can you peer into his head and really pull down that, you know, spring into action, saving that old lady? Can you pull it apart into neat little moral categories and say, yes, indeed, this was 100% a good thing? When God sees the complex nature of our psychology, our physiology... Perhaps this young man intervened because he knew that it would help his chances at getting nominated townsperson of the year. He might be able to put it on his resume. Maybe he knew that when he got involved, his crush might actually say yes to that day. Perhaps he intervened because he knew that the onlookers would see him and think, boy, that guy's a great guy. Maybe all those motivations were at play at once. Maybe it was a whole series of different ones. We don't know. But God knows. And sin is insidious like that. And it robs us of even our good deeds. It's horrible. It's horrifying. 
It robs us of being truly good. It corrupts all our deeds and all our actions and it kills us. It's both intentional and unintentional and we sin voluntarily and involuntarily. I've had moments where I've just felt the pleasure of God on me and I'm just like, yes, I absolutely killed that. And then I thought a bit later and I'm just like, oh, aren't you so great, Cody? You're such a cool dude. And then I'm like, ah, pride, man. I can't get rid of it. This thing kills me every time. And I just realized in that moment, I'm actually steeped in sin. I can't, the good stuff that I do, I can never get it to be 100% good. There's always sin somewhere. Always sin somewhere in it. And the point is, we're not people who do bad things. We're not just a person that messed up or made a mistake or it was an accident. We're sinners. This is what this is saying. We have good things about us. We're made in God's image. We're capable of love, relationships, affection, kindness, gentleness. But don't be deceived. It's all tainted now. Sin is such that it taints everything. It's horrible. It's horrifying. If you don't hate sin right now, you need to think through it again. I mean, think for a second. If you don't believe me, what if we removed every restraint from society? Police, got rid of them. Laws, got rid of them. Got rid of everything. What do you think humanity would do? Would we all of a sudden, like some people think, love each other and peace would go across the world and we'd all gather arm in arm and go skipping down the street? Do you think that's what's going to happen? No. If that happened, I'd be buying a gun. (laughs) If that happened, I'd be like in total fear. There'd be anarchy in the street, bloodshed, theft. The strong would rise up and dominate over the weak. The people that would rule in those days would be those that weren't afraid of harming other people. Are we really any different to this pre-flood society? Would, what's stopping us from ending up like that? Laws, police, but not you. That's the key thing. It's not humanity that's stopping us. It's systems we put in place. It's a hard pill to swallow. Malcolm Muggeridge says that the depravity of man is the most empirically verifiable fact, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted. It's fascinating. He's totally right. I couldn't have said it better myself. And so God sees all this, and how does God feel? Regret. Grief. Sorrow. It says here that human sin has grieved him to his heart. Now, this is anthropomorphic language. You don't know what that means? It basically is language that makes God seem more human. God doesn't have a heart to be grieved in. But that language is being used so we can understand the complex, the complexity of who God is. He's timeless. His plans always succeed. God knew this would happen. But this language is supposed to help us understand God in this moment. And we can. I can relate to God so clearly here. If this was my world, I'd push the delete key. Start again. Start afresh. This is just not working. Praise God that I'm not in control, right? Because none of us would have ever come to live or exist. Human sin threatened to destroy the seed of the woman. Human sin threatened the plans and promises of God. But the key word here is threatened. Did not succeed. The demons didn't succeed. Humanity didn't succeed. They failed to thwart the plans of God. And God was patient. He was patient for a long time. Sometimes we see things falling apart in the society around us and we're like, God, what are you doing? You've got to remember that he waited about 1,650 years before he came down with his judgment. God is patient in a way that we are not. And if God had not been patient to us, you wouldn't exist. 
I wouldn't exist, and we would not have been saved. Human history would have come to an end. God's judgment would have been swift. He would have blotted out all life. Except for the last verse. Noah found favor in his eyes. His father Lamech was right. Noah would play an important role. But he wasn't going to bring relief to their toil. Rather, he would be the vehicle for the salvation of the human race at this point from destruction. And he was going to preserve humanity through God's judgment as God ridded the world of moral and genetic corruption inside. The angels attempted to destroy the seed of the woman by creating these hybrids. They are destroyed. Humans attempted to self-sabotage by falling into greater and greater sin. They would now be washed away. God's plan would prevail. And Jesus would come to save his people from their sins. 1 Peter 3, 20-22 God's patience waited in the days of Noah, and he was patient, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has now gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to it. And the amazing thing about this story and the flood is that it points beyond itself, and it points beyond itself to the work of Jesus Christ. It was a terrible event of cataclysmic judgment of biblical proportions. That's where we get that phrase, biblical proportions, from this event we're going to read in the coming weeks. Only eight people survived. They were brought safely through God's judgment. And in the same way, Peter says, Baptism corresponds to this. Like, what is going on? He says it now saves you. But he's clear to say, not as an act of going into water and being cleaned. Not as an act of having uh, the removal of dirt washed off you. That's not what happens. It's what happens to you. It's a new conscience. An appeal to God for a new conscience given to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those who believe in Jesus, in the same way that Noah was brought safely through God's judgment, you are also brought safely through the judgment of God and saved from his wrath. How cool is that? Jesus rules and reigns at the right hand of God. We see at the end of this passage, he's put all things into subjection underneath his feet. Jesus owns us. He owns this city. This is his city. It is not their city. It's his city. This is his country. He owns this country. It's this This is his world. He owns this world. He owns you. And if you humbly submit to him, he has made a way for you to pass through his judgment, to pass through his wrath. Jesus Christ. When we are baptized, it's a symbol of an eternal reality. It's a symbol of something that's already happened to us when we were born again and baptized by the Holy Spirit. When our life was changed, when we were made into a new creation. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, the cycle of sin and death is broken. The serpent's head has been crushed. The curse has been lifted. We are brought safely through judgment to salvation. We, when you pass through the water unscathed, when you go into the water and you are brought out in baptism, and you pass through God's judgment and you come out the other side, it reminds us of when Noah and his family passed through the floods unscathed and were protected. And how did that happen? Grace. 
It's only the grace of God that Noah found favor, wasn't it? It was his faith. It was the grace of God. In the same way that you found favor with God, grace. Have you ever asked the question, why me? Why did God save me? Why did you choose me? I'm sure Noah asked that question many times. The answer is only grace. Did God save you because you were a better guy or girl? You were better than other people? No, we know that. Grace. Only the gracious love of God can answer that question for us. It's nothing about you and everything about him. When we glimpse into ancient times and we see the world in chaos and turmoil, a world that even to us seems just unrecognizable to us, it should remind us of the grace of God. The seed of the woman was preserved. God did not have to do that. He did not have to save us. We did not have to be born. But God's promises never fail. And he would never go back on a promise. And his plans are never thwarted. And if the full force of the demonic realm and the power of human sin couldn't thwart God's plans, then what could thwart his plans in your life? What do you think is going to thwart his plans for us? What do you think is going to get in between him and us? If the full force of all that was arrayed against God, and God was just like, yeah, no, not today. Trust God with an uncertain future. Trust God with a challenging time. Because Noah did. Most importantly, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to him for your salvation, just like Noah clung to that ark, I'm sure, when that ark was just getting smashed in front There is nothing else that will bring you safely through the wrath of God. He is our covering, our protection, our righteousness, our hope. It's in Jesus. So my exhortation to you as we come to this passage is we remember that uh, we see this horrible stuff going on, but we remember our salvation in Jesus. We remember the relief we get from Jesus. And so my challenge to you is remember Jesus, remember to trust him. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you did not push the delete key, that you could have ended this story of humanity and you could have ended this world and you could have created any number of worlds that you chose. And yet, Lord, because of your grace and love for us, you spared us. And now here we live, Lord, in prosperity and comfort, all because of your grace. But Lord, one day we will have to come before you and give an account for our way of life. And Lord, I know that if I stand before you, then I'm in big trouble. But we know because of the grace of your son, Jesus, we can have hope that we can have salvation. So Lord, I pray for my friends here. Would you just impress that on their hearts? Would they walk out here today just with a renewed understanding and sense of your love and grace towards them? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.